The Grand Sophie by Georgette Hare, dramatized by Peter Buckman. Picture a spring afternoon in Barclay Square. The year is 1815 and the Battle of Waterloo has been safely won. Lady Ombersley and her younger children have just returned from the park in time to greet a new arrival. She has brought a monkey. And a parrot. Oh, you are Cousin Sophia. I am your Cousin Sophia. But pray, won't you call me Sophie? If anyone calls me Sophia, I think I'm in disgrace. Sophie is the daughter of Sir Horace Stanton Lacey, who has swanned off to Brazil on a diplomatic mission, leaving his sister, Lady Ombersley, to launch her on London society. Please may I talk to the monkey? Of course you may, for I brought him for you. Do you like pets better than toys and books? I always did, and I rather thought you would too. Mama, Mama! Cousin Sophie has brought us a monkey! Whatever will Charles say? And a parrot! And look at her horse, Mama! By Jupiter! If I ever saw such a bang-up piece of flesh and blood! Dear Aunt Elizabeth, forgive me, I was making friends with the children. How do you do? Thank you for letting me come to you. Dear, dear Sophie! So like your father. Cecilia, why don't you show Sophie to her room? Cecilia Rivenhall, for that was the Ombersley family name, was the oldest of several sisters, and naturally shy. But she was drawn to Sophie, and anxious to make a friend of her, in order to pour out her problems, which mainly consisted of her infatuation with Mr Fawnhope and her brother Charles's detestation of the man she adored. This Charles... What does he to say to anything? You will soon discover, Sophie, that nothing is done in this house without Charles's sanction. But my uncle has not died, has he? Oh, no. But I think poor Papa has found himself in difficulties. And then I believe Charles did something with mortgages, which seems to have placed poor Papa quite in his power. My cousin Charles sounds like a most disagreeable creature. He is quite odious, for I'm sure he grudges us, his sisters, the least pleasure and is only anxious to marry us to respectable men with large fortunes and can do nothing but catch the mumps. What has the mumps to do with it? Lord Charlbury has them. And Lord Charlbury is? The man they want me to marry. But I would rather die compared to Augustus, who is the most beautiful man in the world. Very true. He is quite the most handsome man I ever saw. You know Augustus? I fancy I danced with him once or twice at the balls in Brussels last year. Was he not attached to one of the generals before Waterloo? But Augustus is a poet. And of course he has no head for business, which disgusts Charles more than anything. Oh, Sophie, we met at Almack's assembly rooms, and I was wearing a gown of palest blue satin, and we no sooner saw each other than I fell. And he has assured me it was the same with him. How could I suppose there would be the least objection? The Fawnhopes have been here since the conquest or some such thing. If I don't care a button for fortunes and titles, what concern is it of Charles's? None at all. Dear Cecilia, may I call you Ceci instead? Don't cry, I beg of you. I could not imagine how I should contrive to occupy myself in London, but Sir Horace assured me I should find something to be busy with, and he was right. My dear Ceci, you suppose that there is nothing to be done when a little resolution is all that is wanted to bring matters to a happy conclusion. 
What can you possibly mean, Cousin Sophie? Now, I must go to my room and dress for dinner, or I shall be late, and there is nothing more odious than a guest who comes late to meals. Sophie changed her travelling dress for an evening gown of pale green crepe festooned at the bottom with rich silk trimming. Cecilia, tastefully but not strikingly attired in sprigged muslin with a blue sash, waited to escort her downstairs to the drawing room. I suppose you had your gown made in Paris, Cousin Sophie? Indeed, nearly all my clothes are made there. There's one consolation, Eugenia will dislike it excessively. Good gracious, who is Eugenia? Why should she dislike it? Eugenia never wears modish gowns. She says there are more important things to think of than one's dresses. What a stupid thing to say. Naturally there are, but not, I hold, when one is dressing for dinner. Who is she? Miss Raxton. Charles is betrothed to her. And Mamma just sent to warn me that she's dining with us tonight. I dare say she will be downstairs already, for she is always very punctual. Lady Ombersley, her two elder sons, Charles and Hubert, and Miss Raxton were seated in a group round the fire. All looked round at the opening of the door, and the two gentlemen rose to their feet. Hubert gazed at his cousin in frank admiration. Charles looked her over critically and quickly discovered he was being looked at in a manner quite as critical as his own. Miss Stanton Lacey. He smiled. Mr Rivenhall. And shook hands. How do you do? I shan't say that I remember you very well, cousin, for I'm sure neither of us has the least recollection of the other. Very true. Not even your mother could remember me. I wish you very happy, cousin, and Miss Raxton also. The Honourable Eugenia Raxton was a slender young woman, rather above the average height. Her features were aristocratic, and she was generally held to be good-looking if a trifle colourless. She was dressed with great modesty in a gown of dove-coloured crepe whose sober hue indicated that she was in mourning for an aunt. Miss Raxton, being the daughter of a Viscount, had every intention of being gracious to Sophie. But when she rose to shake hands, she found herself looking up into Sophie's face, which made being gracious difficult. How very tall Miss Stanton Lacey is, Charles. I'm quite dwarfed. Too tall, if you ask me. We seem to have two guests. What is your dog's name, cousin? Tina. I'm afraid she will not go to you. She is very shy. Oh, yes, she will. There, Tina. There now. What a pretty little creature. I'm not in general fond of pets in the house. My mamma, dear Lady Ombersley, will not even have a cat. But I'm sure Tina here is quite an exception. Oh, that isn't the most famous of Cousin Sophie's pets. You wait, Charles, until you see what else she has brought from Portugal. <laughs> that well-bred shriek was from Eugenia to express her alarm and disapproval as Charles's youngest brother burst into the room with Jacko the monkey wrapped round his neck. A monkey? Why did no one tell me about this? It's all right, Eugenia. Am I in disgrace with you for having brought the children a pet you don't approve of? I assure you, he is perfectly gentle. You need not be afraid of him. I'm not in the least afraid of him. A monkey in the schoolroom is one thing, but Mama's drawing room is no place for such a creature. No, indeed. Uh, take him upstairs, Theo. She has brought us a parrot too, Charles, and it can talk. Only, Addie, the children's governess, Cousin Sophie, has put her shawl over the cage because she said it must have learnt from horrid, rough sailors. Good God, I am quite undone. 
And the man promised me the wretched bird would say nothing to put anyone to the blush. Cousin, your father told us you were a good little thing who would give us no trouble. You've been here for rather less than half a day. I shudder to think what havoc you will have wrought by the end of a week. Only Lady Ombersley, Sophie and Cecilia sat down to breakfast at nine o'clock the following morning. Lord Ombersley, who the night before had wandered in to greet his niece and was so enchanted by her that he stayed for dinner before going on to White's to play Faro, Lord Ombersley never left his room before noon, while Charles and Hubert had breakfasted at eight and were riding in the park. My dear Sophie, we must do something to entertain you. What if we were to hold an evening party with dancing? If Charles will permit it. Oh, Cecilia, you know your brother has no objection to what Miss Raxton calls rational enjoyment. I don't mean we should give a really large ball, of course. Dear Aunt Lizzie, you should not put yourself out for me. No, but I'm quite determined to give a party for you. I promised Horace I would do so. I assure you we're not in general quite so quiet as you find us at present. I do, however, find the arrangements for such things rather taxing nowadays. But if that is all that troubles you, ma'am, Cessie and I will arrange everything, and you shall have nothing to do but choose what dress you will wear and receive your guests. Just tell me, Aunt Lizzie, where shall I find Hawes Bank? Hawes Bank? What in the world for, dear? To present Sir Horace's letter of authorisation, to be sure. He banks with them. I dare say he may, my dear, but surely you don't have an account with a bank? No, alas, it's such a bore. But we settled it that I should draw on Sir Horace's funds for my needs. My love, young ladies, I've never entered your uncle's bank in my life. No? Perhaps Lord Ombersley prefers to settle all the bills himself. Sir Horace taught me years ago to understand business, and so we go on very happily. Do you always call your papa Sir Horace, dear? No, Aunt Lizzie. If he makes me very cross, I call him papa, which is of all things what he most dislikes. I've never heard of such a thing. But never mind that. My child, you cannot possibly need to draw funds while you are with me. You have no notion of how expensive I am, ma'am. And Sir Horace warned me most particularly not to allow myself to be a charge on you. Does your papa, does Sir Horace set no limit to what you spend? No, Cessie. How could he when he has gone quite out of reach and can have no notion of what I might suddenly need? So, Hawes Bank. In what part of town is it? Fortunately, since neither of the Ombersley ladies had the slightest idea of where any bank might be, Charles now entered the room, still in his riding clothes. I'm going to the city, Mama. Is there anything I can do for you? Not for me, Charles, but your cousin Sophie wishes to visit Hall's Bank. Does she indeed? Unusual. It's at Temple Bar, cousin. I shall be happy to escort you thither. Thank you, Charles. I shall be glad to go with you. When do you wish to start? I shall await your convenience. Lady Ombersley, always inclined to be optimistic, nourished the hope that Charles had taken one of his rare likings to his cousin, and he was certainly predisposed in her favour when she didn't keep him waiting. For her part, Sophie could not think very badly of a man who drove such a splendid pair of horses in his two-wheeled curricle. Reserving final judgment until she'd seen him with a tandem or a four-in-hand, Sophie felt she could confidently ask his advice in equine matters. I must buy a carriage, cousin, and I don't know whether to choose a curricle like this or a high-perch phaeton. Which do you recommend? Neither. Oh, 
What then? Well, you're not serious, are you? Of course I am serious. If you wish to drive, I will take you in the park one day. I expect I can find a horse or even a pair quite enough for a lady to drive. Oh, I fear that would never do. And why not, pray? I might excite the horses. I beg your pardon. I had no intention of offending you. Uh, but you cannot need a carriage in London. You will no doubt drive out with my mother, and you may always order one of our carriages to be sent round. Most obliging of you, Charles, but that won't suit me. Where does one buy carriages in London? You will scarcely drive yourself about town in a curricle. Nor do I consider a high-perch phaeton at all a suitable vehicle for a lady. They are not easy to drive. A high-perch phaeton was a very sporty, open carriage with extravagantly large wheels and was renowned for being both fast and dangerous. And Charles was adamant he wouldn't allow his sisters to drive such a vehicle. You must remember to tell them so. Do they mind what you say to them? I never had a brother, so I don't know. It might have been better for you if you had, cousin. I don't think so. The little I've seen of brothers makes me glad that Sir Horace never burdened me with any. I know how I might take that, I suppose. I imagine you might. For although you have a great many antiquated notions, I don't think you stupid, precisely. Thank you. Any other criticisms you'd care to make? Never fly into a myth when you're driving a high-courage pair. You took that last corner much too fast. What abominable girl you are. But we can't quarrel all the way to Temple Bar. Let's cry a truce. By all means. Let's talk about my carriage. Do I go to Tattersall's for my horse? Certainly not. Dear Cousin Charles, do you wish me to understand that I have the name wrong, or that there is a superior dealer? Neither. What I wish you to understand is that females do not frequent Tattersall. Now, is this one of the things you would not like your sisters to do, or would it really be improper in me to go in there? Most improper. If you escorted me? I shall do no such thing. Then how shall I manage? Cousin... If nothing will do for you but to drive yourself, I will put my Tilbury at your disposal and choose a suitable horse to go between the shafts. One of your own? None of my horses are at all suitable for you to drive. Never mind. I shall prefer to have my own Phaeton and Pair. Have you the smallest notion of what you would have to pay? No, tell me. I thought not above three or four hundred pounds. And your father would not object to you squandering three or four hundred pounds on a pair of horses? Not in the least. Unless I allowed myself to be taken in like a goose and bought some showy-looking animal forever throwing out a splint or a high stepper found to be touched in the wind at the end of a mile. Whoa! They had by now arrived at Hawes Bank, and Charles, a little deflated, offered to accompany Sophie inside. She declined, saying he'd do better to walk his horses. Some 20 minutes later, she reappeared, accompanied by a senior official of the bank, who solicitously handed her up into the curricle. Thank you. She and Charles then drove to an office near St Paul's, where he had some business to transact. I shan't keep you waiting about five minutes. Oh, I don't mind waiting in the least, cousin. I will take the reins. Charles handed them to her, reflecting that, though he wouldn't trust her to control his spirited horses, his groom was already at their heads. Five minutes, then. Sophie watched him walk into a building, then pulled off one of her lavender kid gloves. Oh, my glove! Please run and get it, or it will blow quite away. Don't fear for the horses. I can handle them. The street was deserted. The horses were standing quietly. The groom touched his hat and strode across the road. Tell your master it is too chilly to keep the horses standing. I will tour the coracle round the streets for a few minutes and come back for him when he is ready. The groom spun around so swiftly he nearly fell over. 
He had an excellent view of Miss Stanton Lacey driving at a smart pace up the street. He made a gallant attempt to catch the curricle, but it swept round a corner just as the wind blew his hat off. It was nearly half an hour later when the curricle again came into sight. Charles, awaiting it with folded arms, had ample opportunity to observe with what precision his cousin rounded the corner and how well she handled the reins and whip. But he does not appear to be much gratified, for he watched the approach of his curricle with a scowl on his brow and his lips tightly pressed together. Sophie pulled up exactly abreast of him and said cheerfully, I beg pardon, I have kept you waiting. The thing is, I don't know my way about London and became quite lost. Where is your groom? I have sent him home. Quite right. I like a man to think of everything. You could never have quarrelled with me really well with your man standing up behind us overhearing every word. How dare you drive my horses? Give me the reins at once. It was not well done of me, but you will own that there was no bearing your conduct in talking to me as though I were a silly chit scarcely able to drive a donkey. At least admit that I am able to handle your pair. Driving about the city, not even a groom beside you. No doubt Sir Horace would have applauded such behaviour. No, I think he would have rather expected you to have offered to let me drive your horses. I let no one, no one drive my horses but myself. In general, I think you're right. It is amazing how swiftly a clumsy pair of hands will spoil the most tender mouth. (sighs) Oh, don't be so out of reason cross, cousin. You know very well your horses have taken no sort of hurt. Will you help me choose a pair for my own use? I will have nothing whatever to do with such a mad project. Very well. Perhaps it would suit you better to find me an eligible husband. I understand you have some talent in that. Have you no delicacy of mine? I dare say it would astonish you to know how much. I dare say it would. But with you, dear cousin, I know I need have no reserve. I find it marvellous, cousin, that no one has yet strangled you. Oh, if you please, would you stop? I have seen an old acquaintance. Charles complied with her request and then saw, too late, who was walking down the street towards them. It was Mr Augustus Fornhope, a beautiful young man, whose hair waved naturally from a brow of alabaster, whose eyes were of a deep blue, exquisitely set under arched brows. Not the least of his charms was that Mr Fornhope was utterly unconcerned about his appearance. So preoccupied was he with his ambition to become a major poet that he paid very little attention to what was said to him, and none at all to what was said about him. Mr Fornhope, how do you do? Have I had the pleasure? We met in Brussels. We danced the quadrille at the Duchess of Richmond's ball. Do you remember? Are you acquainted with my cousin, Mr Charles Rivenhall? I'm staying with my aunt in Berkeley Square for this season. You must come to call on us. I know she will be delighted. Of course I remember. Enchanting to meet you again, ma'am. I shall certainly do myself the pleasure of calling at Berkeley Square. Good day to you. I hope your old friend contrives to remember your name before he avails himself of your invitation to visit. If he doesn't, he will find someone to tell him. You are shameless. Nonsense. You only say that because I drove your horses. Never mind, I will engage not to do so again. I shall take care of that. And let me tell you, dear cousin, that I should be better pleased if you would refrain from meddling in the affairs of my family. Now that I am glad to know, because if ever I should desire to please you, I shall know just how to set about it. I dare say I shan't, but one likes to be prepared for any event, however unlikely. Are you thinking of being so unwise as to cross swords with me? 
If you imagine that I will ever permit that puppy to marry my sister, you have much to learn of me. Pooh, Charles. Mind your horses and don't talk fustian to me. Sophie was pleased with her morning's work. Charles, less so. He told his mother that the sooner she had married Sophie off to some poor wretch, the better it would be for the rest of the family. He described her as pert, headstrong and so badly brought up that he doubted whether any man would be fool enough to offer for her. His mother seized the moment to suggest that giving an evening party for Sophie would be a good prelude to finding her a husband. Not a large affair, Charles. Perhaps ten couples or so in the drawing room? By all means. That will make it quite unnecessary for you to invite young Fawnhope. Quite. I should warn you, Mama, that we encountered him this morning. My cousin greeted him as an old and valued acquaintance and begged him to call on her here. Though he had no more notion of who she was than the Emperor of China, he will certainly call. I leave you to deal with that, ma'am. Good day to you. Lady Ombersley wondered how she was supposed to deal with a call paid by a young man of unexceptionable birth who was the son of one of her oldest friends, but then dismissed that matter, preferring to concentrate on the far more pleasant problem of whom to invite to the first party she had held in two months. In this, she was interrupted by her niece. Sophie, what have you been doing to vex Charles so? Nothing, Aunt Lizzie, except to steal his curricle and tool it around the city for half an hour. Charles's greys? You could never hold them. To tell the truth, I had the devil's own work to do so. Oh, I beg your pardon. I didn't mean to say that, dearest Aunt Lizzie. Please don't scold me. It comes of living with Sir Horace. I know I say the most shocking things, but I do try and mind my wretched tongue. Don't give Charles's pets another thought. He will come about presently. I dare say if he had not engaged himself to marry that tedious girl, he would not be so stuffy. Sophie, I own I cannot like Miss Raxton. Try as I will. I should think not. But one should. She's so very good. And I'm sure she wishes to be a most dutiful daughter to me. And it's ill-natured not to wish for a dutiful daughter. But when I think that in quite a short time I shall have her living in the house... Living in the house? You are not serious, ma'am. They'll have their own apartments, but... Oh, let's talk about your party, my child. Charles has given his approval. I told him there would be about ten couples. Dear Aunt Lizzie, I beg you will let me and Cecie make all the arrangements. Oh, but I should surely supervise. You have much too much to think about, and it will keep me and Cecie out of mischief. Well, I suppose... Then that's settled. And I beg you, Aunt Lizzie, not to concern yourself about the cost. Sir Horace insisted that I pay my way, and he would be most upset if you were to go against his wishes. The very nice man at Horsebank assured me his affairs were in excellent order, so you do not have a thing to worry yourself about, dearest Aunt Lizzie. Cecy and I will start work immediately. So where, dear Cecy, do we order invitation cards? And where do you go for refreshments? I don't think we should leave it to your cook, do you? He would be so busy for so many days, he wouldn't have time for anything else, which wouldn't do at all. But Sophie, Mama said it should only be a small, quiet party. No, Cecy, it was your brother who said that. It is going to be a very large party. Does Mama know? Not yet. Does she not care for large parties? Oh, she enjoys them excessively. There were more than 400 invited to the ball she gave for Maria, and it was a capital success. 
But the cost. Charles would be so angry. Don't give him a thought. Sir Horace will bear the cost, not Charles. Make a list of all your acquaintances, Cessie, and I will make one of all my friends who are in England. Then we will go and order the cards. I imagine we shall not need more than 500. Sophie, are we going to send out 500 invitations without even asking Mama? Of course we are, dear Goose. For once we have dispatched them, even your horrid brother cannot recall them. Oh, famous! What a rage Charles will be in! Next time on The Grand Sophie, our heroine cuts a dash at the exclusive Olmax assembly rooms. But why does she take Charles's betrothed, the buttoned-up Eugenia, for such a hair-raising spin through London's notorious West End in her new high-perch phaeton? Subscribe now at thegrandsophie.co.uk or on your usual podcast app.